and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, make himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we declare that we need your Spirit to help us understand, help us apply what you desire to speak to us through this word that we have just read. Would you give us your Spirit for the glory of Christ and for the exaltation of your holy name? In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Friends, as we approach this passage, the theme of my sermon this morning, the theme of this text and the verses that we will focus on is conflict, adultery, and grace. Conflict, adultery, and grace. I want, to remember, I want us to remember the context of what James has been doing up to this point in the book of James. Um, He has given, in chapter 3, two pictures of wisdom, one that is earthly, the other that is from above. But what James is really after is not simply the profile of wisdom from earth and wisdom from above. What James is really after is the fruits of that wisdom. What kind of fruit does a wisdom from above produce? And James gave us a rich picture in verse 18 of chapter 3. A rich picture that summarizes the wisdom from above and what it produces. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, two weeks ago, we devoted an entire sermon um, on this idea, this theme of sowing in peace. What does it mean to sow in peace? Today, as we press forward in our passage, we want to look on the opposite, at the opposite of sowing in peace. We want to focus today on the reality of conflict and what causes conflict. Friends, this reality affects every sphere of human life. Conflict, strife, divisiveness, fights, it happens all over. It happens in our political realm. It happens in the business world. It happens in our educational institutions. It happens in nonprofit organizations. It happens among friends. 
It happens among co-workers. It happens among family members, between spouses. It happens between parents and children. It happens between children themselves. It happens among Christians. It happens among churches. It happens in churches. It happens in this church. It happens in your life and in my life. It happens everywhere. So today I want us to look at this reality of, of conflict, of divisiveness, of strife. Why does it happen? And how can we respond to it? How can we prevent it? How can we guard our hearts to understand what is happening inside of us so that when those inclinations assault us, when we're prone to respond in conflict and to cause conflict, we might know what's going on and how to address it. Three things as we will look at this passage that will help us address um, the issue of conflict. The first one we will look at this morning is the source of conflicts. The source of conflicts. Look at verse 1. In very plain language, James asks for the source of conflict. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, where are they coming from? Now, clarification here. James is not addressing people who simply have differences. Uh, people who have different opinions on a particular matter. We may, my goodness, we are in a Baptist church, right? Um, we may have different views on different issues or various issues. We may have differences on how to do the life of the church, on how to execute, on how to go about our services or our, our ministries or how to do certain things. Or we may have differences in our, of, of the way we live family life, the way we think about our children, the way we think about the priorities in life. We, we may have differences. But interestingly, James is not giving us the details of what exactly, the circumstances that caused these problems. Did you notice? We could try to reconstruct what exactly was going on among these believers to whom James is writing. Now, if, if you're picking up on the letter of, of Paul to the Corinthians... You can pick up there very easily what exactly caused the struggle. You can, we can sort of reconstruct what exactly was going on in the church of Corinth. But the people to whom James is writing, there's no detail in the passage about what exactly the circumstances that caused these fights. Well, James is not giving us the details because he is saying it's not the circumstances that are the problem. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. The problem is, why are there quarrels and fights? I don't care about the differences. I don't care about the fact that you might see some things differently. I care about why are there quarrels and fights among you. Friends, let me ask you, do you get into fights and quarrels with others? With your spouse? With your children, with your parents, with your co-workers, employers, friends, church leaders, with other Christians. Can you think about the last time you got in a fight with someone? 
But verbal, I'm not talking, hopefully not physically. Hopefully. But verbally. Verbally. Perhaps some of you this morning, as you drove to church, you got into an argument and a fight. Perhaps this week, in your family, with your children, your spouse. And if you can't remember when was the last time you fought, praise God for that. But you most likely will between now and the time you see heaven. So think about what causes, what causes fights when that happens with you. James says in verse 1, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions? Why do you get into heated disputes, even over differences? What causes them? It's, it's not the differences. It's your passions. In verses 2 and 3, James gives us an x-ray of these passions. He gives us these details, not simply to inform us, but to help us see that what is broken in a particular conflict situation, what is broken is not the circumstance. It's not our differences of personality. It's not our differences of how we see things. It's not a mismatch of, of, of priorities. It is our passions. What is broken in a conflict is not our relationship. What is broken in conflict is our passions. James will give us four examples of the inner brokenness of our passions. Now think of these as just four scenarios. There might be more. These are four scenarios he's going to bring before us to, to prove to us that our passions are broken. Look at the, verse, the first two, the first, first picture. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now there's no indication that these believers actually killed one another physically. Uh, rather, it's possible to see this language um, just in the same way that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, it's not simply that you should not murder, but you should not hate your brother. So that simply being angry or hating others is liable to judgment. Uh, that might be the, the way this phrase is used here. Or as, as one of the commentators said, James chooses the vocabulary of war to express controversies and quarrels, animosities and bad feelings among Christians, not because there's no other way of saying it, but because there's no other way of expressing the horror of it. You see that point? He, James is using this language in a, perhaps in a, in a metaphorical way to, to show that quarrels and fights are horrible. Just as horrible as killing, murdering. Now, how often, friends, do we minimize the, the impact of a conflict? We, don't, we often don't think it's a big deal. We, we say things like, we had a disagreement. Or uh, we might say things like, uh, we just have some differences. When in reality, you had a bad fight. In reality, words of hurt were coming out of your mouth. Words of anger were coming out of your mouth. It's not just disagreement. You actually engaged in a fight. But we minimize. We minimize conflict. We just say, oh, we, we just don't see eye to eye on the same thing. Or our personalities just don't match. Oh, friends, having fights, having conflicts, 
is a serious matter. And James uses this picture of murder to show the gravity of even fights, quarrels. It may not be physical murder, but fights and quarrels kills the peace, kills the harmony, kills the unity, kills the respect, kills the love. Worst of all, in acts of destructive words, we actually act destructively against another person who is in the image of God. So James says, you desire and you don't have, so you murder. The second, second picture that James gives us is, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Same reality, but now a different picture. Coveting. Coveting. That subtle sin that we rarely speak against. Setting our desires on what we don't have and others have. Friends, coveting is such a big deal that it made it on the top ten list of sins on the Ten Commandments. It is that big of a deal. God told Moses, you shall, or the people of Israel, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his male ser female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting, desiring what you don't have. These Christians were coveting and couldn't get what they coveted, so they started quarreling, fighting. Friends, how do you respond when you don't get what you want? What is your reaction when things don't go your way? Now, some people are very pleasant, very nice, when everything goes their way. It's very easy to get along with people as long as everything goes, along, you know, goes their way. But how do you respond? How do you react? How do you interact with others when things don't go your way? That's a big test. It's what you lack causing you to act in a sinful way towards others. I love uh, David Powelson's book. He, he wrote a book on, called Seeing with New Eyes. It's, it's a book on on biblical counseling, he's addressing in this book in one particular place, he's addressing fights that, that couples often experience. And David Powlison says in, in his book, he says, I have yet to meet a couple locked in hostility who really understood and reckoned with their motives. And he goes on to say, James 4 teaches that cravings underlie conflict. Cravings underlie conflicts. Why do you fight? It's not because of my wife or husband. It's because of something about you. Then Paulison gives a list of examples of what kind of passions or what kind of cravings often rule in us, and we don't even know. We don't even realize. They're subtle. He goes on to say it's a list of cravings. He says the, the, the cravings for affection for attention, for power, for vindication, for control, for comfort, for a hassle-free life. And we could add some others. Cravings for respect. Pray, cravings to be the one who's right all the time. Cravings like these become the root of our conflict in the family, 
in friendships, among Christians in the church. I love this phrase, cravings underlie conflict. Then uh, James goes on and he says, you do not have because you don't ask. This is a third scenario. James exposes the tendency of some people who simply act upon their desires but don't ask God to supply. They simply demand it from others. They take matters in their own hands. They don't have time to pray about it. They don't take time to pray about it. Friends, what would happen if when you sense conflict arising in you, you would stop and pray? Don't go in saying what you want to say. Stop and pray. James says, you ask, you don't have, I'm sorry, you do not have because you don't ask. What do you think would happen? I remember the testimony of Paul Tripp. Um, he gave the testimony of his own struggle with anger. And at one point, he, one of his children did something that was very, very bad. And, and Paul Tripp, as a parent, was ready to act in administrating uh, some degree of discipline to his child because of the wrongdoing that his child has created. And he's walking into the room with his, with his wife was, and he's fuming, and he says something like, you won't believe what our son just did. And he's fuming, he's... His emotions are engaged, and he's about to go into his son's room to address his son. But his wife says, you're not ready to go with those passions. You must first pray. You don't have because you don't ask, says James. And yet there's others. There's a fourth category of, of situations among others um, who actually do ask God in prayer. And James tells us in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Oh, how often, dear friends, we pray for things, we pray wrongly, not because we're asking for the wrong things, not because we're using the wrong words, but because our prayers are motivated by wrong motivations. They're motivated by our self-centered passions. Friends, can you, imagine, can you imagine a picture of Christians praying? Either together or on their own. And yet their prayers are wrong. They're wrong because the, at the heart of their prayer is not the glory of God, but simply the fulfillment of their passions. What is wrong about their asking is not what they ask, but the ultimate reason why they ask. It is still self-centered, still, still desires that, that are human-centered, sinful perhaps, in more explicit or indirect ways, because they are ultimately aimed at glorifying human abilities, human passions. So quarrels and fights have their source inside us, our passions. Wherever you see conflict, dear friend, Wherever you see conflict, you can be sure there's uncontrolled cravings. There are unsatisfied passions that have not yet been fulfilled. And it's not just in one person. 
but in all those involved. So that's what causes passions. But let's look at the heart. The second point is the heart of the conflict or the heart beneath the conflict. We said that cravings or passions are, are that which underlies conflict, but let's look now at the heart of these passions, at the heart of these cravings. The heart behind the conflict has a deeper problem than simply the conflict itself. The, conf- the heart behind the conflict has a deeper problem than simply the conflict itself. The real problem is not the conflict. Um, it's not that people say, oh, I can't get along with someone else. Or, I, or, or people say, why can't we just get along? Friends, it's not just about getting along. It's about the heart beneath a conflict. Um, notice, notice, notice what is the problem. James says in verse 4, you adulterous people. That's the problem. That's the heart beneath the conflict. It's not just a matter of why can't we get along. It's the heart of the people who can't get along. And he calls them adulterous people. Now, throughout the sermon series, I've been hearing from many of you and on various occasions, how much you love the book of James. And as I was working through this passage, I was thinking about you. About all of you who love the book of James. And I wrote in my notes, really? Even now? Can you love James now? When he is addressing these people in this way? And can I remind you for the for the entire book of, of, of James, he's been addressing the, these believers with, my dear brothers, or brothers. Nine times he addresses these Christians in, in such endearing language. But now, in chapter 4, when he's dealing with their hearts, that is the heart beneath a conflict, he is calling them adulterous people. When... Uh, Doug Moo says in, in his commentary, one of the most strongly worded calls to repent that we find anywhere in the New Testament is here. James warns his leaders about flirt, flirtation with the world and its consequences for their relationship to God. Now, why would James bring out such strong language against them? Remember what James challenged them in verse 3. He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then right after that, James says, You adulterous people. Why that connection? I want you to imagine a husband and wife. The wife comes to her, her, her husband and says, Honey, would you allow me to buy this really, really nice dress? I've been, I've been wanting it for a while now. It's so beautiful. Um, would you buy it for me? And the husband, lovingly, um, that he got a bonus at work, and he says, well, um, his, birth, uh, his wife's birthday is coming up, so the, the husband will spend $500 on buying this really expensive dress for his wife. And the wife takes that dress, happy, puts it on. 
but uses it to go on a date with another man. Isn't your stomach turning inside of you and just hating that? She asked for, from her husband for this beautiful, expensive dress, and her husband gave it to her, bought it for her, and she uses it for someone else to cheat on him. Well, friends, what would you say about that wife? In the same way, when we ask God to give us things, but we desire to spend His blessings on our sinful passions, on our self-centered desires, it is as if we're asking God to cover the bill for our flirting with our self-centered sinful desires. To ask God for things and then to spend them ultimately, not for His glory, but for ours, for our cravings, it's the culmination of of an adulterous heart. That's why James says, yeah, you ask God, and you, you don't get it, because you ask for them to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you see the, the pain? Do you see the, the, the darkness that James was to bring out before them, this picture of an adulterous heart? That is why James uses such a graphic picture against these believers. Let me give you some contemporary examples. I'm going to start with the life of the church. A pastor who prays that God would bless his ministry, his church to grow so that he could boast about numbers, so that members could boast about numbers, so they could build their self-image around the success of the ministry. Or Christians who pray for better jobs simply so they have more money to be more materialistic. Or parents who pray for their kids to have wisdom in school so they can have better careers so that their kids can live the American dream. Oh, ask yourself, how much of our prayers, how much of our prayers are truly motivated by the glory of God or are they motivated more by our self-centered, selfish motives, the cravings, the passions? This is the heart of adultery, to ask God to pay the bills of our sinful desires. And then when God doesn't give these to us, we fight, we quarrel, we become bitter, we become angry, angry with God, bitter with other people. We respond in sinful ways to our family members, to our church members, to our church. No wonder James is using this graphic picture of adultery. The heart that causes conflicts and divisiveness has bigger problems than simply divisiveness. Fights and quarrels are simply the fruit of a heart that is adulterous. Oh, friends, the Old Testament gives ample pictures of the adultery of Israel, not simply physically, but as a picture of their spiritual idolatry, the spiritual adultery. The book of Hosea is filled with that picture. Jeremiah says, But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Now, just to be sure that this is not just the Old Testament. Jesus describes the Israelites of his day who have rejected him and who would reject him. And Jesus describes their, his generation. He says to them and about them, an evil and adulterous generation. Matthew 12, Matthew 16. Later in Mark 8, uh, Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous 
and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, James addresses these Christians with the same graphic language of adulterous people. Friends, their, heart, their problem is a bigger problem than the conflict. Their problem is spiritual adultery. They were more attached to the sinful world, to the ways of the sinful world, to the self-centered, self-glorifying, self-desiring ways of life. Their worldliness was visible in their self-centered passions, in their sinful passions. So now James will ask them two questions to expose their flawed logic. And the first question is, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And then the second question that James asks is, do you not know, do you, not, do you suppose that it is for no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Oh, friends, in these two questions, James is pointing out to them that in befriending our own interests, we have become friends of the world and of the Lord's, and the Lord's enemy. In befriending our own interests, we have become friends of the world. When we are at conflict with each other, we are at, actually at conflict with God himself because we're acting upon our coveting. We're acting upon our unfulfilled, unmet, selfish desires, upon their cravings, upon our priorities that are world-centered, self-centered. So in this midst of, of exposing the, the heart that is adulterous, exposing the real cause of conflict, James gives us a word of hope. James gives us a word of hope. This is the third point of our, of our sermon this morning, a word of hope. And that word is grace. Is there hope for people who are drawn to this world? Is there hope for people who love this world, who covet what they don't have? In the second question that James poses in verse 5, notice what comes after the question. He says, oh, Do you not suppose, or do you suppose it is not, for, is it for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that, is, that he has made to dwell in us? Now, right after that, there's another phrase. And actually, in the Greek language, that phrase is part of the question. Is a phrase, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. God is not only jealous over the spirit he has put in us, but he does something else. He gives us more grace. Friends, this is the hope, uh, the word of hope. That the, that, that the word, the phrase, he gives more grace, is actually part of the question. In other words, James has, asks, God is jealous over you, but he's not just, just jealous over you. He gives more grace. Why? Why does he give you more grace? So he should not leave us in the ways that continue to provoke God's jealousy. The grace that God gives is not given to us so that we can continue to live the life that provokes the jealousy of God. God gives us this grace so we might deal with the cravings 
the passions that are sinful. Oh, friends, it is only when we understand the grace of God that we start developing in us attitudes of gratitude and thanksgiving. And we stop craving and desiring for the things we don't have because we understand what God has given to us in Christ Jesus. He gives us grace to supply our wants, to to subdue our self-centered, sinful, worldly ways of life. Left to our own, we are naturally inclined to love this world, to love the ways of this life that, are, that is apart from God, to love the, the desires for independence apart from God. But God gives us grace to heal our sinful cravings. But then look at what verse 6 says and how verse 6 ends this, this thought. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I love how one one of the theologians said about this, God's grace demands response. The response of humility. James introduces this note through this quotation from Proverbs 3, uh, where God says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the theme of humility will be the theme of of verses 7 through 10, at which we will look next week more closely. But here, we're simply seeing that God's gift of grace is enjoyed by those who are willing to admit their need and to accept the gift of God. It's only for those who are willing to say, it is not about my craving, it's about my need for the grace of God. I need to submit myself to God. I need to draw near to Him and not act upon my cravings, not act upon my desires, not act upon wanting to be right at all times. I need to submit myself. Not just to others, but first of all to God. Because in my cravings, I'm actually opposing God. In my desires to have things my way, who is at the center of the universe? Who is at the center of my life? It is my wants. I want. I want it done in this way. I need the attention. I need the respect. I need to be heard. I need to be cared for in a particular way. I need, I need, I need. And James says, what you really need is the grace of God. And unless you're willing to humble yourself, to ask for that grace to be given to you, you're you're going to be left in your proud, prideful, self-centered cravings. The grace of God is given only to those who humble themselves. But realize a beautiful promise at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That craving for exaltation, that craving for attention, that craving for having things done your way, submit to the Lord. He will exalt you. Friends, three ideas that James brings together in this text. The cause of conflict, the adulterous nature of our hearts, and God's provision of grace to heal us of our worldliness, of our sinful inclinations. Friends, have have you realized that conflict and divisiveness reveals something more than simply a strained relationship? Conflict, divisiveness in a relationship, in a church, reveals adulterous 
hearts. And such adulterous hearts manifest not simply in acts of immorality, but in acts of sinful cravings, coveting what we don't have and responding sinfully to others because those desires are not met. Only the grace of God can heal us of our cravings. Would you pray with me? Father, would you teach us your grace? Would you give us hearts that are humble to receive your grace and to seek it? To deny ourselves, to deny our self-centered ways of life, our, our worldly view of life, Help us, O oh Lord, to turn to you and ask of your grace so that we might be healed. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor. Amen. Amen. Well, what response do we have to this? Jesus.